the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, a Levite, a concubine, a bad marriage, and an immoral Israeli town, what could possibly go wrong? Without God, everything. The stage is set for an unspeakable event to occur. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 19, verse 13. Once again, that's Judges chapter 19, verse 13. Judges 19. Judges 19. Well, if you've been following with our study in the book of Judges, you know we've been in the land of the strange and the weird. And it's going to get weirder and unfortunately also sadder. Well, they press on to Gabeah, which is a city of the Benjamites, verse 13. And he said unto his servant, Come and let us draw near to one of these places to lodge all night, in Gabeah or in Ramah. And so they passed on and they went their way. And the sun went down upon them when they were by Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gabeah. And when he went in, he sat him down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. Now, the word there, street, refers to the public square, usually near the gates of the city. So they travel, it's nighttime, they come in, and they just kind of sit down in the gates of the city. And when you see someone sitting down in the gates of the city in a Middle Eastern culture, and you don't know who they are, the polite thing to do is to offer them hospitality. But no one offered them any hospitality. This should have been a clue that this was not the best place to spend the night. It was a great insult to refuse someone hospitality in that culture. Eventually, someone does talk to them. Verse 16, he's not from this town normally though. Verse 16 says, And behold, there came an old man from his work out of the field at evening, which also was of Mount Ephraim. So he's from where this Levite's been staying. And he sojourned in Gabeah. So he's not from Gabeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. So he's from a different tribe, but these guys are from the tribe of Benjamin. Now it says here, verse 17, And when he had lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man. So now we're getting his perspective. He saw the traveling Levite. He saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And so the old man said to him, Where are you going? Where you come from? It's late. What are you doing here? And so in verse 18, the Levite gives the explanation. He says unto him, We are passing from Bethlehem, Judah, toward the side of Mount Ephraim, from thence am I. And I went to Bethlehem, Judah, but I am now going to the house of the Lord, and there is no man that receives me to house. Yet, 
There's both straw and provender for both our donkeys. There's bread and wine also for me and for your handmaid and for your young man, the young man, which is with your servants. There's no want of anything. I, I just need a place to stay. You know, when the old man still doesn't invite him into his home, the Levite answers the rest of the question and brings up his spiritual position. I'm a Levite. I'm going to the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord is a tabernacle at this point in time. There's no permanent temple. It moves around. At this point in time, it would be at Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is far to the north. He doesn't have anything to offer to the Lord. So my guess is he's insinuating that he's headed there to serve. Now, Levites, because there were so many of them, they didn't just go to serve whenever they wanted to. They had to be selected. They would draw lots. And when your lot was drawn, you'd be selected to go serve the Lord. There's no mention of this. He's going to get his wife. He's going to win her back. There's no mention of going to the house of the Lord. So when he kind of starts to throw his weight about, oh, I'm serving the Lord. I'm a Levite. The guy still doesn't offer to take him in. And so after he pauses and the guy doesn't offer to take him in, he explains their current dilemma. We don't need food or drink. We just need a safe place to sleep. The old man, though, doesn't seem to need all those reassurances. He just seemed curious because in verse 20, he offers him hospitality. And the old man said, peace be with you. Shalom, which means I wish you well in every way. You don't need to explain. He says, howsoever, let all your wants lie upon me. Just do not lodge in the street. He says, I am happy to help you out. I want to take care of you. I'm happy for you to be my honored guest. Just do one thing. Do not sleep out here. And so, verse 21, he brought him into his house, gave him provender for the donkeys, and they washed their feet and did eat and drink. I mean, finally, some true hospitality. Things seem to be going better. But as the night goes on, we see why no one offered them a place to sleep. The Levite and his family and his servant were targets. Verse 22. Now, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city... Certain sons of Belial, they beset the house around about and they beat at the door and spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring forth the man that came into your house that we may know him. So we first see an unbiblical marriage. Now we see a wicked town. These men surround the city. They're called sons of Belial. The word means worthless people, wicked people, troublemakers. And they're not just trying to make new friends. The word here that we may know him means to have sex. And it's certainly not the conceptual type. Now, this is very similar to the incident in Sodom with Lot and the two angels who were his guests. You remember where the people of Sodom surrounded the guy's house, banged on the door, demanded that he send out Lot so they could rape him. And so this is a similar situation. The difference is, This isn't Sodom. This is an Israeli city. This is God's people. Now, I highly doubt the city of Gabeah became like this overnight. But it didn't take long to get from, we will serve the Lord in front of Joshua, to gang rape. Not long at all. How does that happen? Well, when God isn't the king of my life, And when God's word isn't my standard for everything, by definition, I am my own king, right? I am my own king, and I determine my standard by very definition. If I say God is not my king, and his word isn't my standard, then by definition, I am my own king, and I determine my standard. 
Now, when I am my own king and I determine my standard, that means there's no limit to who I can become. There is none. Now, while that mindset is bad enough, when the principle, that principle, that I'm my own king and I determine my standard, when that principle is then communicated to a next generation who has zero of your experience of how God does things and how doing things God's way brings blessing, they don't have any of the benefits of your relationship with God. And thereby, they lack some of the restraint you might retain despite your incorrect approach to life. When you take that and then extrapolate it to a third generation, it's not difficult to lose any resemblance of your grandparents' spiritual character. It's not difficult at all. See, that's why it's foolish to say, well, my sin only hurts me, man. No person lives in a vacuum. Everything we do creates waves around us that impact what's closest to us. Everything we do. Now, that's a blessing, right? If God is your king and his word is your standard, right? We have that beautiful promise in the book of Proverbs as it concerns our children. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? A beautiful promise, excellent promise. The word train up, the original meaning means to make narrow, to make narrow. It came to mean to put something into the mouth, to inspire, to initiate someone into something. So when it says, train up a child in the way it should go, it's talking about inspiring your child to begin to put something into their mouth, to initiate them into something. So what are parents to inspire their children to do? What are parents initiating their children into? The narrow path, right? The narrow path. That's what that word means, to train up, to make narrow. We are inspiring them into the narrow path. And what is a narrow path? That God is my king and his word is my standard, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. That's our job, to train up a child in the way that he should go, the narrow path. That is part of my job as a parent, one of many jobs as a parent, to put that into their mouth, to initiate them onto that path, to inspire them to take that path. Now, there's a very important truth about this. That inspiration, that initiation, that feeding cannot be accomplished only with verbal instruction. Cannot. When we teach our toddlers to eat or walk, what do we often do? I don't know about you, like they make fun of it in movies sometimes when they're feeding the baby with the really yucky, whatever it is, when you're trying to feed them, starting to get them to eat real food. And oftentimes you'll see the person as a caricature of what we do. You know, nom, 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 right? You know, same thing when we walk, we hold their hands, take a step, you know, and we, we mirror it for them. You know, one of the tragedies of child neglect and child abuse, when you find those who are in situations like that, they never had that. So, They're so delayed because they never had that. They never had a parent who loved them enough to do that with them. And so there are basic things in life that they don't have at an age where maybe you look at them and you go, you know, this kid, he's he's eight years old. Why is he acting like a four-year-old? Well, because he never had a mom or dad who loved him enough to do those things with him, to mirror how to do life, how to do basic things. Something to remember next time child like that is acting out. 
When we teach our toddlers to eat or to talk or walk, we're a mirror to them to see how it works. We'll make the motions or the sounds of eating while we bring the spoon to their lips to show them how it's done. Might even take a bite of that nasty stuff. We're not just telling them what to do. We're showing them how to do it. Our kids will see right through an instruction for them that we violate. Our kids will see right through an instruction that we give to them that we violate. And what we'll teach them is a very different truth than the one you think you are. What you'll be teaching them is, God is not really my parents' king. God's word is not really my parents' standard. My parents want me to behave that way because it's convenient for them. So, when we ask ourselves, what kind of waves are we creating? Let's create the right waves. Because God promises if we initiate and inspire our children into this narrow path, it will never be removed from them. Now, we have to understand something. When it says he shall not depart from it, it's in the imperfective in the Hebrew, which means the action is viewed from the inside. It does not mean that this is a guarantee they'll never reject it or they won't rebel against it. That's not the point. It means that they will know clearly what the narrow way is and they will know that you initiated them into it no matter how old they get. That narrow path will never leave the inside of them no matter how far away they walk from it. And that gives them the best chance to come back if they go astray. That's why we do it. But Israel didn't pass that on to their kids. We read in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. After Joshua dies, it says, Also that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And thus, three generations later, we have another lot on our hands. We have seemingly good people, a Levite who has some principles. We have this old guy who's got some principles. They're vexed by the evil around them, but they refuse to come all the way to the right solution. Their lives are compromised. And so verse 23, we see this man's pitiful attempt to get them to leave, horrible offer to get them to leave. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray, please do not so wickedly. And he pauses, but they don't relent. Seeing that this man has come into my house, don't this follow. He appeals to them morally first. Don't do wickedly. Then he appeals to them socially. He's my guest. This is horrible. You're going to bring shame upon me? And when they don't listen to that, he appeals to their flesh. Behold, here's my daughter, a maiden, and he's got a concubine. Them will I bring out now, and you can humble them. The word here for humble means to rape. It's the same word that was used when Delilah afflicted Samson. You can have your way with them. Do with them what seems good unto you. But unto this man, do not so vile a thing. Now, we'll see in a moment that this old man had no intention of giving his daughter to them. He hoped to shock them into seeing their evil request by showing how desperate he was but it doesn't work. And thus we move from an unbiblical marriage to a wicked town to a vile, vile crime. In verse 25, 
but the men would not hearken to him. When they call his bluff, it says the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. The man there refers to the Levite. So the man took his concubine. His concubine. At some point, when they call his bluff, the old man goes inside to tell the Levite of the situation. And the Levite sends his concubine out to the rapist. The word there brought actually means he caused to go out. He didn't even go outside. He sent her out. And I realize the next section is a very difficult read. So I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to read it. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. And then came the woman in the dawning of the day, and she collapsed. She fell down at the front door of the man's house where her Lord was till it was light. Rape is a despicable, violent, evil thing. Using people for sexual pleasure is rampant in modern entertainment. Rape now is a common topic, common event that occurs in TV shows, books, novels, movies. Is it any wonder rape is rampant among the elite in our society, in entertainment, media, and politics? Is it any wonder it's still so prevalent throughout our society, even though we have so much media coverage and education on it? Why doesn't it go away? This is why education alone or awareness alone or even activism alone never brings lasting change or real solutions. Only a heart that owns Jesus as king and his word as its standard can be healed from self-indulgence. It's not that we ignore these things in society, but if we look to these means alone, either education, awareness, or activism alone, if we look to these means, those means alone as a solution, it's like trying to drive a car without a battery in it or trying to explain laser technology to a three-month-old. You're not going to get anywhere no matter how much around you externally changes. And that's why we're in the mess that we're still in, even though we had an amazing civil rights movement in the 60s. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we can change the laws, but only God can change men's hearts. Only a change of heart will really fix the situation. Now, it is very difficult for me to read these verses and not weep. This is not a story. This is not fake news. It's not a Facebook post you can ignore because you don't agree with its stance. This is a real woman who endured eight to ten hours of sexual abuse at the hands of brutal men. This scripture should break our hearts. It should make us angry at sin. It should make us swear that we will look at people differently, not as objects to be used, but as image bearers with dignity. It should instill us inside of us the absolute necessity to make God our king and his word our standard. So we never take the first step to viewing a person as something to be used for my personal pleasure. Now, 
I know some of you out there listening here, you may have experienced similar horrors. And I say to you, I'm so sorry for the evil that was done to you or the evil that was done to those you love. I can't even imagine how painful a chapter like this would be to study. But please know this. Abusers will never be tolerated here. Never. I don't care how gifted they are. I don't care how good they preach. I don't care how good of a musician they are. I don't care how friendly they are. I don't care how much they give. They'll never be tolerated here under any circumstance. And neither will racists, neither will be hate mongers. None of that will be glorified here because they have skill sets that the world admires or thinks we need. If you have gone through a horror like this, or you know someone who has, know that God loves you and know that he wept every moment those horrors were perpetrated on you. Now, some of you may be wondering, why would God let something so evil happen? Well, the answer is not an easy one to hear. To stop this event, God would have had to have stopped everything. And that means everyone would perish, even this concubine, because all have sinned and incurred God's wrath. When we say such a thing, why didn't God stop that? Inherent in the question is, I'm righteous. I deserve better. I'm not like everyone else. God should have stopped it for me. And that is a problem. God does not want anyone to perish. And so he waits. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it talks about the end. But before it talks about the end, when God will judge all sin, when he will right every wrong, it says the Lord is not slack. He's not lazy. He's not sinful. He's not not doing anything. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering to us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he waits and he weeps. In John eleven thirty five, we have the famous verse, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few moments. Why weep? Because he saw everyone else weeping. He saw the pain they were experiencing and it broke his heart. Know this. He does wait. He doesn't judge every sin right now. And while these horrible things are perpetrated, he weeps. He weeps. Someday, he will put an end to all of it. For the very next verse in Second Peter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein that are therein shall be burned up. He will put an end to all of it. And then there will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. 
and there will be no more evil. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, toward the very end, it says this in verses 3 through 8. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Right now, we don't want him here. But then it will be with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. Right now, we don't see it as his people. It's why horrible things happen. We're under the care of another, one who does not love us, one who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And lavishes in every moment of it. But they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them. And be their God. He'll protect them. It says he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write that down. We need to know this. For these words are true and faithful. It will happen. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain, the water of life freely. And he that overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, they shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He will bring justice, and he will put an end to evil. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.